Hello and welcome to Cruise Club. We've got the Need the Need to Podcast. This is episode 26, Collateral from 2004. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And with us tonight, Mike, if you listen to our Hanks for the Memories, big news actually, that our main man, Tom Hanks, two things. Golden Globe nominations came out. Oh. He is going to be getting, I think this was maybe announced before, he'll be getting the Cecil B. at the Mill, Cecil B. at the Mill, oh. uh, I think Lifetime Achievement Award, but also received the Best Supporting Actor nomination for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. So very big news, very big week for Mr. Tom Hanks. Excellent. The reason I bring that up is because if you listen to Hanks for the Memories, last week's episode about Apollo 13, we looked to the space, we looked to the heavens, and we found a guest. And he is back with us again as we traverse the streets of Los Angeles. I would have bet so much money that this play, this movie took place in New York, just like with my vague <laughs> recollections. Like, a taxicab movie. Definitely New York. With us tonight to straighten me out geographically is Tobin Addington. Hello, Tobin. Hello. And it ends on in a subway, which is not something you think of with Los Angeles. Right? So, yeah. <laughs> You'd be, you'll be forgiven for, for thinking it's New York. Before we get too far into collateral, let me do a quick plot summary. This is my this might be the easiest plot summary really? that I, I think, because I'm going to skip a bunch of it. So, <laughs> Jamie Foxx is a cab driver, picks up Jada Pinkett Smith, who is a high-profile lawyer. Tomorrow starts a big case. Let's her out, picks up Tom Cruise, the leading actor in this movie, even though he and Jamie Foxx basically both should be lead actors. We'll get into that. Mm-hmm. Jamie Foxx nominated for Academy Award and Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor, lost both of those. However one best actor for Ray. So this is a oh. big year for Jamie Foxx. Jamie Foxx picks up Tom Cruise. He says, you bring me to all five stops tonight. Here's $600, another $100 to bring me to the airport in the morning. Jamie Foxx brings him around. First stop, dead body falls from a rooftop onto Jamie Foxx's cab. He, realize, he quickly realizes that Tom Cruise did that. Tom Cruise is a bad, bad man. And the rest of the movie is him bringing Tom Cruise against his will from location to location as Tom Cruise systematically takes out basically every high-profile informant and cog in this case with the final person he's supposed to kill being Jada Pinkett Smith. Jamie Foxx then goes to her place of work, kind of rescues her, shoots Tom Cruise through the face. There is a chase to the Los Angeles subway. They have a confrontation. Jamie Foxx shoots and kills Tom Cruise. Permadeath here, Mike. We have actually Tom Cruise dies, dies, dies on screen. Stays dead. (laughs) <laughs> Second one, Taps. Taps dead, too. Oh, my bad, my bad. It's been a while. It's been a, been while. a while. Jamie Foxx and Jada Pinkett Smith leave. Movie ends. So there's yeah. a lot of things that happen in here, but basically, it's just them going from place to place. Tom Cruise being a ruthless, efficient, badass killer, and Jamie Foxx being like, please, won't someone help me? <laughs> I think it's a pretty straightforward movie, yeah. but also really, really cool. I'd only seen this movie once before in its entirety, and I wonder if I hadn't rewatched it because I didn't want to like spoil like <laughs> what a great experience that was. But like, luckily, no. Like, I had just as great a time watching it for this show. But like, man, this movie is lean and mean and super tight. Maybe a little too tight at times, not to its detriment or anything to the point where it's unenjoyable. But I'm just maybe coincidence-wise and stuff. But yeah, man, I like, I love everything about this and like i'm sure we're going to talk about how it was shot and the look of this thing and how much that adds to what's going on with the chemistry between these actors and this is this is just two guys like two guys like acting their ass off in this movie together and they're just they fit so well i can't say like enough right now (laughs) like i gotta collect myself someone take over i really wonder if this is a movie that people know about like i know people know about this movie but i think Mm -hmm. in the pantheon of tom cruise 
movies. I don't know that this one is especially known for two reasons. Number one, when I was looking for the art that I'm going to make for the episode on cageclub.me, the picture that I found from blog post was called Why Collateral is the Best Tom Cruise Movie Nobody Talks About. Point one. Exhibit one. Hmm. If I'm Jada Pinkett Smith. Exhibit one. Exhibit two. No one that we emailed, none of our friends signed up for this episode. We had to recruit Tobin. I, I don't know if Tobin, if you, if you didn't sign up for this one because A, you didn't click it, B, you thought you signed up for too many, but no one, not a single person of the 30 or so people that we emailed signed up for this movie. And we were like, huh. But then on a handful of earlier Cruise Club episodes, you had been talking about how much you love this movie. We're like, oh, we've got to get him on here. But I don't understand why people don't know this movie. I agree, I agree with you, Mike. I think this is one of Tom Cruise's better movies, cooler movies, better performances. One of, I think, maybe three movies where he's the villain. Mm-hmm. It's Taps, where he becomes the villain, Interview the Vampire, and this movie. There might be more, but I don't think and, so. And this but is like, way more of like a modern take on like a hitman villain. Kind, you know, like yeah. this is a real deal against Persona type of role for him. But Tobin, why don't we go to you first? What do you love about this movie? What is your favorite part of Collateral? Why do you love talking about this? Is this a movie that you show or have shown in film classes? What about this do you love? Oh my gosh. So let me start. No pressure. Yeah. Let me start by saying the reason that I did not sign up for it is because I was signing up for a bunch of movies and I didn't want to take one that I, like I, I thought, okay, somebody else can do collateral because surely there'll be a bunch of people who will want to do collateral because who wouldn't want to talk about collateral and watch it again and enjoy it. So I was trying to leave room for other people and I, I feel bad for them that they have not uh, seen this movie or maybe they felt the same way. Maybe they were, they were also holding back. I love this movie in so many ways. I come into this movie as a Michael Mann film, a uh, fan. Michael Mann is the director of this movie. He's a filmmaker I've, I've always loved. Thief, Manhunter, Heat, The Insider, and then on to Miami Vice. And he's a, a very kind of masculine filmmaker. He makes, by which I mean, he makes films so very often about men. The women are usually sidelined, which is a thing that I, in general, I have, <laughs> I, I have a hard time with in movies. But but I think he understands something about uh, masculinity and is is interested in kind of unpacking it in, in curious ways. And then this movie is so. The other thing is so so cool about Michael Mann movies for me is his intense research. So he'll go into, you know, if he's going to make a movie about a cab driver, he's going to go drive a cab. You know, he's going to go hang out with the people who do it. He's going to go like sink into the minutia of how things get done. You can sort of feel that coming through this movie. Like so if you just said the premise to somebody, a, a hitman picks up a cabbie and, and, and sort of hijacks him for the night to go on all this, on this crime spree, you, that could be a really cheesy straight to streaming thriller or whatever. Whatever, with, yeah, with sort of nothing, yeah. <laughs> nothing to it, right? But this mm-hmm. movie invests so much in the characters and the and the and the world that they're in, and makes it as believable as possible. From the criminals to the police, um, the performances are fantastic. Uh, and I have a lot more I could say, but I, I will I will leave it there and, and let somebody else take over. I love this movie so much. Is there one part that's your favorite? Like, is there one element of this that stands out for you above the rest, above everything else in this movie? Knowing that this was going to be one of our conversation points, I kept looking. I had one in mind, which is the coyotes. And then I and I kept mm. look. I kept looking for. Okay, I'm going to see. And then moment after moment went by, and I'm like, oh, that scene. Oh no, no, that scene's the one. I well, here's what I'm going to. Here's what I think crystallizes this movie for me. There's a scene in the kind of in the middle of this movie where Tom Cruise tells. 
Jamie Foxx, like, let's take a break. We're ahead of schedule. We're gonna let's go hear some jazz. And they go to it. <laughs> they go to a jazz club, and mm-hmm. it's this great jazz club. And they have this conversation about Miles Davis with the trumpet player afterwards, the guy who owns the club. And it's and then at the last minute, there's this reveal that you know Tom Cruise lets lets a name drop, and the guy's like, oh shit. And then Tom Cruise kills him in the middle of his own club. And it's this beautiful, it's it, what feels like it's just a character scene ends up also being a plot scene, but you get some sense of kind of the sadness and the world weariness and the compromised choices and the way that, you know, th- life doesn't work out the way you expect it to. All of the stuff is wrapped up in that one very surprising scene that I love so much. So that, that w- that's, would be my pick for kind of best moment in the movie. Yeah, that's really great. You know, this is really kind of like a lonely movie in a lot of ways, right? About like mm. lonely people like meeting up and crossing paths and and it's weird. I don't I know this sounds like cliche because it said so much about New York, but in New York is a character. Um but like LA is such a character in this movie and you could tell Michael Mann just loves that city and if I'm not mistaken, they're shooting this all on digital, right? Like this that's was right. an experiment for Michael Mann to say like I need to shoot this movie at night. I'm in love with LA at night with the lights and everything. And so the available lighting and the digital technology and the the filmmaking here and what seems like a lot of sort of run and gunning, you know, even them being, you know, major Hollywood film, a lot of this just feels super loose and and rough and just adds so much to like the dimension of it all, everything. And so, yeah, there's just like so many aspects of this movie that jump out that are just so good and and add to it. To every scene. Have either of you seen the documentary Los Angeles Plays Itself? No. No. So there's this movie that came out a handful of years ago that I saw at a draft house when I was living in Austin. I think it's since made its way to Netflix. But there was this movie that I think for years and years got sort of shuffled around because it was just it took clips from all these different movies and I think there were rights issues but basically it's sort of you know like you were saying like how New York is the fifth character in Sex and City like there's all these like whatever jokes about but it's true right like it it just like when you have a Mm -hmm. New York movie that is very inherently a New York movie there's a feel to it and I think the same is true about Los Angeles this movie in Chinatown in Under the Silver Lake whatever you're talking about there's a I think it's maybe possibly more diverse there is a movie called Los Angeles Plays Itself and it's kind of a journey through film history in movies where it's set in Los Angeles where Los Angeles is important to the story I would recommend checking it out. I don't remember if this movie's in there. I'm sure that it is. This movie feels so importantly Los Angeles. Like I think there's a lot of it like mm. the cab element, the subway element that feel inherently New York, but the way they get from place to place, the sort of the free space, the blank space in between, the ability to run around, the sort of absence of people, I think is something that you would never be able to really have in New York. I think it's something that you kind of only have to have in a city, maybe possibly like Los Angeles at night. I don't know. But I think the the movie is fascinating. I think it's transport from New York to LA. This was originally set in New York. And then when Michael Mann came on, he shifted the script to Los Angeles. So I think he had a vision. Like you were saying, Mike, you know, he's in love with, with, with Los Angeles at night. The digital element has like a, it has like a look. And I don't remember, I was reading a trivia thing. I don't know if it was something he, he was saying or a critic, but it was saying about how this was like the first digital film or one of the very first digital films that like used the digital look to have a look, to invoke a feel, right. as opposed yeah. to just shooting for the economy of it all. And this does feel like he's got a very uncomfortable way 
and I'm sure, Toby, you can explain it better than I can, but, like, the super close-ups, the weird kind of angles, the jarring, like, the it, everything just feels a little uncomfortable, a little bit off, <laughs> but it works here, because, like, you're supposed to feel uncomfortable. At the time this movie came out, I was in the middle of film school. At our, at our grad school, there was a, like, this whole switch to digital was a, a real sort of controversial subject, and there was all this, I remember purists saying, you know, all digital looks like shit, why would anyone ever shoot anything on digital? Sort of the way that Nolan talks about it today, and then you had other people who were who were sort of evangelizing it. One of the things that I remember the conversation about this movie talking about was the fact that, as you say, it has it, it's not trying to look like film. I think that was a, a, in the early two thousands when they would be using digital video cameras and and try and make it look like film. Is when it would when it would look the most bad. Like we we hadn't learned how to light for digital yet. We hadn't learned how to use digital cinematography in a way that sort of supported the right kinds of stories. And, uh, and, and also the technology, you know, obviously changed a lot just in, in the next five years after this movie. This is a movie where, as you say, the aesthetic choices made in terms of being able to see into the distance at night, being able to sort of get in these impossibly close places, being able to shoot so much footage because you could shoot really quickly. You didn't have to light it as much. You didn't have to take as much time. You didn't have to, to load film. You, and it wasn't as expensive. It was cheaper to shoot on video. So they were able to get all these shots. I mean, there's more you know, and to, I think eventually the detriment of some of uh, Michael Mann's style, feel th- sometimes things begin to feel overshot after this movie. But I think it's pr- it's pretty pitch perfect here. But it was kind of contentious at the time. Like, is this is this really the future? Do all movies have to look like this? And the answer, of course, is no. But this one this one did blaze a trail. I was watching this movie with all of that kind of in mind because I knew from the first go around, like the history of the film and like you know the way it was made and everything like that. And I was wondering now, like, is can this possibly be considered like an experimental? film for the time that it was made in and I mean it's a hundred and five million dollar experimental film but well, yeah sure yeah, we, could, we could say that no, but I mean in the sense that like you know The Phantom Menace is like an experimental film for CGI technology like in the way that a lot of this is built around the technology that it is used to make you know so like they they know they're going in there with these certain types of cameras and stuff and so everything is sort of revolving around that and then, and then in that sense it just feels like a big experiment of like okay how far can we push these cameras like where can we put it like you know like you're saying about the style like can we define a new style of cinema can we put a new look to it like to the silver screen and all this stuff and like I mean not in the traditional sense of like crazy experimental stuff that makes no sense or you know that is like way out there and surrealism or anything thing like that but just in the regard of that it's trying to do like what the mainstream is doing in a very consumer way you know like he's doing this in a way that like we could have in a lot of ways like these are the cameras essentially that were available when I was uh, being taught by Tobin basically (laughs) or or, like in film school and such and you know Danny Boyle was using this kind of stuff and not trying to hide it either right Right. like saying this is the tech this is how it looks so I mean that kind of thought crossed my mind watching it and kind of just like added a lot to the allure of it being like oh this is digital is an art form you know people can say film this film that until the end of time and like I don't disagree but I also agree that there's merit to the digital uh, style look and form and you can do stuff that you can't do any other way so I think this film is a testament to that kind of thing I mean not to further sort of derail this from the talk about actual collateral but I don't know when else we'll be able to talk about this unless we ever do a Cinemakers for David Lynch but I don't know that we're going to do Cinemakers for David Lynch I would like to but you know there's other things going on David Lynch has a digital style that like if it was anybody else I would hate and I still kind of hate it but like I know he's doing it for a reason Uh and I think that there's always something interesting to think about and even if you're not 
able to art like I don't know that I can really fully articulate I know the benefits of digital filmmaking is what you said before Tobin it's about you know economy it's about the different you know lighting depths and all this different stuff and all that I understand that on some level not on a deep level but on a sort of a shallow level but there's like the thing like David Lynch like with Inland Empire and Twin Peaks The Return where it like kind of intentionally looks bad like, I don't know. It doesn't look pleasing to the eye always. Maybe mm. that's a better way to say it. Not that it looks bad, but it's just like, I don't know what's happening. And I feel like here it's the same kind of thing where it's like, it doesn't look beautiful, but it looks beautiful. Like, it looks specifically chosen for this look, for this feel, for this aesthetic, but it's not traditionally the way that you would expect a movie like this to look. And it just, it's jarring, but it's impressive. And I don't know, I wish that I was able to appreciate it more, but I think kind of the point of it, or I guess this is more of a question than a statement, is the point of this to make you feel, like, it's to make you feel kind of, like, icky? Well, I think in part of what digital does is it, like, there's there's more of, like, a clearness to some of it, right? And so, like, maybe you're just picking up on the vibe of the dirt on the street more or something, like, to that effect. I mean, it's a thing that I think high frame rate does in a poor way where it, you know, shows you exactly sort of what's there in a way that film can sort of hide Gemini that look. Oh my goodness, that is just (laughs) so hard to watch. Stay tuned for Ang Lee Cinemakers in 2028. (laughs) But I I mean, say like intentional or not, I think that's, um, that was a good side effect for what went on because I think that feeling fits the tone of this film. You know, you want it to feel icky, like this is a dirty city at a dirty, you know, time of night and he's doing dangerous and dirty things so yeah i've come to really love the look of this movie it's it, we should know that the, it, this wasn't entirely shot digitally there there are some scenes in super 35 i think the jazz scene is one of them i don't think that's video i think that that's 35 but the look that it's remembered for is this kind of grainy scuzzy look that i think keeps us off balance and keeps us sort of i find it hard i think the way you're saying it joey's really good that it is it's like ugly beautiful (laughs) like the beauty isn't in its sort of pristineness it's in its messiness which is true for so much of the movie too that it's the that it's the messiness against which tom cruise's character's strict rules kind of play against and i think that 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 sort of marries aesthetically the, the that character and the sort of the themes of the movie with the way it was shot because he is like a slick, sleek, professional hitman. Right? He is the guy who, like, he is sort of the digital. Like, he is just ruthlessly efficient. He can do. He can. He can. You know, pardon the, the what sounds like a sex metaphor. He can go all night. Um, you know, he can just. He's able to do everything. Like he's like, I got five stops. I got six. Like you know, he he's kills sixteen people. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He literally turns into a Terminator at the end here, basically. But like, he's able to do exactly what he needs to get done. Oh, I think the only time we ever see him reload is at the very end when he realizes he reaches in to reload, and he's like, "Oh no, this is the end of me." Like, you don't have to reload a digital camera. I guess you have to put in a new <laughs> SD card or whatever. But like, he is basically the epitome. Like, he's digital filmmaking mm. and a killer, which is weird. That's pretty cool. I didn't think of that before because I, I was just thinking about how precise they both are in their professions, and they've mm. clashed. So there's like only room for one. Like, <laughs> only one can be super precise, and so at the end, Jamie Foxx wins out, and and he'd been winning bets all night. So you know, I had banked <laughs> on him anyway. No, that's a great. That's a great point. I think Joey, you could definitely like elaborate on that somehow. That's great. And for people who don't know how this speaking of bets how the bet on digital cinematography 
one out. Like almost everything you watch today is shot digitally. Very few things are shot on film anymore. And if they are, they're usually by people who have enough clout to be able to to do that. So your Tarantinos and your Paul Thomas Anderson, yeah, Paul, Christopher right. Nolan, and Christopher and, Nolan, yeah. famously, yeah. yeah. And 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 then you have everybody who's either not making a big deal of it, or people like Soderbergh, who's you know who's who's doing it kind of, or David Lynch, who's doing yeah. it kind of iPhones. <laughs> yeah, iPhones. Right, right, right. So this is like this was in, in at the time. This felt like a which way is this going to go? In retrospect, it's like no, this was going to happen no matter what. Like this was this was just coming. And it took someone of uh, Michael Mann's stature at the time coming, you know, sort of after winning, uh, you know, or being nominated for Oscars for for multiple movies to be like, no, I'm going to try and do this now. I think there's a, there's a way to use this technology. Mm. And, and he did here. I think what's really telling, too, is his next movie, I think, was Public Enemies. And he, again, shot it, I think, entirely on digital that time. And it did just not work, you know, for a period piece of gangster films and stuff. I'm sure he was like, hey, let's, you know let's just apply the same formula because, you know, efficiency, cost, whatever. And it just did not fit or work. I remember just not, I remember that being a problem for me watching that movie. So, you know, it is, I think it does depend on the material. It depends on period. And it just, it was like a nice marriage here that just worked out really well. You mean the Channing Tatum vehicle, Public Enemies? Is he in that? Was he? Yes, I, he the Johnny, Johnny Deep was in that, right? <laughs> Channing Tatum is killed within 10 minutes of that movie, and that movie is like two hours and 20 minutes long. But yes, Shannon Tim is in that. We have an episode of it over on Magic Mike's if you want to go check that out. Mike, did you did you mention, do you have a, did you pick um, a favorite part? Did you pick a favorite moment in this uh, movie? No, not yet. I mean, I, I, was, I did sort of bring up the, the look of the film earlier, but I mean, I... It's kind of cheating to pick Tom Cruise as your favorite part of the, and everything, but I just and it's it's I have a real one, but I just have to say we haven't mentioned his his look yet, like the gray hair, yeah. Uh, yeah. the the five o'clock shadow, like he this this is like totally bizarro Tom Cruise look, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. he, not that he's trying to hide, but he's definitely trying to say like well. You he is trying me. to hide. I don't mean to interrupt you, but that's a no. perfect because the the coolest trivia that I've ever read in IMDb is that the whole point of Tom Cruise's character essentially is that he can go in, go out, not be noticed, get the job done, move on. Right? Like he's sort of a mm-hmm. chameleon. He's a ghost. You know, and he's in the, literally in the Fast and Furious. He is Han. Mm-hmm. He is just he can blend anywhere. To help him get into character, Michael Mann supposedly had him deliver FedEx packages in Los Angeles and have to get good enough at it to not get noticed being like, oh, why is Tom Cruise delivering my package? So what you said, like he is literally not trying to stand out. Like he is trying to blend in and not look like himself. And I think it is working impeccably. Yeah, I I love his look and he's using it so well in this movie. (laughs) But guys, my favorite part I think and I remember this from the first time I think this was actually the first time that I remembered to remember who this actor was when I saw him in a movie but Mark fucking Ruffalo yes god damn it in this movie he's so great and when he gets shot I'm so pissed because I I forgot that I just want one clip of him at the very end to come back you know because everything is so tightly knit in this movie I want Peter Berg to like show up with flowers at his hospital or something but Ruffenberg like when they're together on screen as like oh my god Ruffalo is just so good in this he's so badass and he's like in his own movie for most of this movie and yeah (laughs) yeah, yeah. I I love his look I love just like how smart his character is and you know Joey and I bring up how dumb cops are all the time and I mean it's a trademark you know you can't you just (laughs) can't have a smart cop but here Ruffalo like immediately he's like hey remember that case a few years back where like the the cabbie drove 
drove around and killed three people than himself and what if there was another guy in the car and what if this is that and I was like oh my god that's awesome I'm so glad the movie like had the guts not to dilly dally with any of the like police work and shit and so like man when he when he showed up on the scene I was like oh damn it yes I'm so happy he's in this movie it was really that was really something I was loving him too I was glad that he did not come back at the end because, like, two things. Number one, my favorite thing in this as Tom Cruise as a whole in the type of role that we have not seen before that I think we have been talking about most of this episode so far, we will continue to talk about him in the villain role. But number two, my favorite part of this, I think my favorite sequence, is that club scene. The club scene is just so mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. The sound mixing is so good. Like, the gunshots are so loud. It's like John Tom, Wick, right? Like, pre-Wick. Yeah. yeah. Tom Cruise punching a guy and then snapping his neck and then stomping on his neck. Like, it's just brutally efficient but in that club scene as things are going on tom cruise is taking out handlers and bodyguards and men to get down to the to to limb to the final guy and mark ruffalo is there and he knows like jimmy fox i think thinks like max thinks he's gonna have to explain himself like i'm not the guy like they think he's the guy right he's like i'm not Mm -hmm. the guy i'm the cab driver and mark ruffalo's like look i know like let's get you out of here and he brings him out and you're like finally you'll win for the good guys and then they get out and then tom cruise shoots and kills Mark Ruffalo. And from the way it was shot, and maybe I just didn't see it right or whatever, it seemed like he was not as tactically efficient, as precise as he had been. Like, the reason that Mark Ruffalo kind of links all these things together is because when they go to the morgue, he's like, there's the two, like, it's like kind of the military shooting, right? There's yeah, the two in the, the chest. Tap. Yeah. yeah, and the one in the brain. It didn't, to me, look like Ruffalo had taken those kind of shots. It looks like he kind of got shot, like, in both shoulders or something. And I was like, is he going to, like, I kind of hope that he doesn't come back because it feel, it would feel like a cheat, that Tom Cruise is supposed to be perfect, uh, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I'm glad that he doesn't. And the only reason in the end again, from IMDb trivia that I did not notice, but I love this little element. The reason that Jamie Foxx is able to kill him just sort of spraying and praying, as opposed to Tom Cruise, a professional hitman, is because as the subway doors close, where that double tap and where the brain shot would be is a metal bar in the middle. So so Tom Cruise's specific aiming hits the the metal, and Jamie Foxx is just like shooting everywhere, and he just catches one bullet, luckily hits Tom Cruise. But... I was glad that Mark Ruffalo didn't come back. Like, I love him in this movie. I, I, you know, I was, I was like, is he playing a Mexican character? Like, oh no, he's just undercover. Thank God. Like that was, that would have been maybe a little problematic. Um, but I'm glad that he didn't come back. Like, I loved him. I, I was, I was, on, I'm right there with you, Mike. But I'm just glad he didn't come back because it would feel like Tom Cruise is perfect except for this one convenient plot point. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Plus, it also gives the movie something of its own, right? Because like in a maybe in a generic cop thing, like he would survive, but like this right. is collateral. He's gonna stay dead, and he's not gonna show back up. And it's like, oh, well, you know, like, it's not his movie after all. Like, we're going to continue on without him. And I still love that about it, too. It's just like such a, oh, it's just one of those moments, you know, it's like when it's like you just expect that guy to last, you know, you just expect him. He's so smart and cunning and like resourceful and boom, like, yeah, he just gets taken out. It's like such a, oh, it's one of those great groaner moments. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Mike, to your point, the one of the things that I love about Michael Mann movies is that they're very often about people who are really good at their jobs. And what that means is that everybody on both sides or multiple sides of whatever the story is, is it, like they're the best at what they do. So in The Insider, you have Lowell Bergman, who's like the Al Pacino character, who's the, who's the best investigative journalist ever. And you have the, you know, the corporate guys were the best corporate guys ever. Like in, in, and in, you know, famously in Heat, where you have the cops and the robbers 
both being we're sort of following them both kind of like you are in this movie a little bit like they're both the best right they're both both teams are the best at whatever the cost that is to the rest of their lives and that's true here too that even outside of the main pair of jamie fox and tom cruise you have the 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 mark ruffalo peter berg cop contingent who who some of whom are actually are actually very very good and even if they're not the best they're really competent right so which means that then what what happens is that you set up the stakes the stakes get raised because you know that anybody could be really good (laughs) at what they do and so anybody could stop the other people right it's not like you're not just creating star characters to knock them down and i think that's something that that comes through really well on all in all different kinds of ways jada pickett smith too who yeah has to get rescued at the end which is kind of a bummer but she's like a the reason she has to get rescued is because he wants to kill her because she's such a badass prosecuting attorney right so it, she's really really good at her job too and um that's what so many of the conversations that they have in this movie are about how they do their jobs and what their jobs mean and what the cost is to the rest of their lives and what it means to, to do your work well and all that so i i think that 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 comes through in you know in all the characters here they do it so effortlessly early on during that conversation with Jamie Foxx and Jada Pinkett Smith, and then almost the same type of conversation when Tom Cruise gets in the car, but about how Jamie Foxx knows the city and he can time him and this and that, and it's like, I didn't even realize they were setting up the idea that he's the best cab driver. You know, like, it's just so right, subtle right. in that way. And then, obviously, I mean, it, it's kind of funny. Like I, like, I instantly just assume Tom Cruise is the best hitman on the planet. I mean, <laughs> especially when, like, Jason Statham bumps into him and has to say, excuse me. I wasn't <laughs> yes. sure if that was, if they were working. It's apparently to... a shout-out to the transporter. Okay, because I wasn't sure if that if he was, like, exchanging, like, briefcases in a public place by pretending not to know each other. But, okay, yeah, because it's I think also like, that, like, it's it's a two for one. Right. It's like a oh, this is his cool. transporter. And it's also he's giving him the, the correct bag or whatever. It would be really cool if um, they do like a transporter prequel with with Tom with uh, Tom Cruise and Jason Statham <laughs> or a flashback or some shit. That actually might be my least favorite part of this movie is that Jason Statham's in one scene and then never comes back. It's like, come on, mm. man, don't don't yeah. tease me like that. No, I hear you. <laughs> it could be, but I also do want to say that you know Jamie Foxx might not be. I mean, he's not the best cab driver. He just gets lucky with the lights, which I like. I like that he says that to both Jada Pinkett Smith and Tom Cruise, like. Oh, I just got lucky with the lights. Like, he's just trying to downplay, but like, he says it with a smile. Yeah. Like, he's trying to be humble, but also knows, like, he knows exactly. Like, he is, you know, Tom yeah, Cruise, yeah. like, do you know what this address is? He's like, yeah, like, basically, yeah, like, of course I do. Like, yeah. I know exactly where that is. Jamie Foxx is so good. Like, uh, I mean, like, I grew up watching him, like, doing the comedian stuff and, like, his sitcom and things like that. But, like, when he came to feature films, like, it's such a different, it's such another, like, for him to be go toe to toe with Tom Cruise, like, like, I never doubt, you know what I'm saying? Like, it feels like he's been on screen for decades, like, doing this, like, you know, it just seems so natural. So like that as well, like, kind of blew me away. I I guess I don't really watch a lot of Jamie Foxx films. I I don't know, like, I've seen Ray, and I've seen a few, but they just kind of elude me at the moment. But seeing this one, and seeing how good he is, it's just like, I gotta remember to to keep an eye out for more often. You know, Mike, he's in a movie that has a particular connection to our most recent episode, I think, unless I'm conflating movies, our most recent episode of Grand Isle, because don't call Cage a jarhead, but isn't he in Jarhead? Wasn't that what Jesus Walks was from? Wasn't that that movie? I have not seen... Have I seen Jarhead? I, I, I have not seen right. Jarhead. I think that's right. That's the well, that's Gyllenhaal movie with Jake Gyllenhaal? Yeah, the Sam Mendes movie. Well, I have Jake, to see that. Jarhead, yeah, Jamie Foxx, Jake Gyllenhaal, just directed by Sam Mendes, yeah. I just have to say there are four sequels and another one coming to Jarhead. I just want to throw that into the conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I knew there was at least... I knew that there was at least Jarhead 3 because I'm never going to do it on my show. Wait, ever. what? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is the least sequelable 
movie ever and it's the least like war movie war movie ever like it's a very very cerebral kind of thing and wow the fourth one came out this year jarhead right yeah so there's jarhead there's jarhead 2 field of fire which came out nine years after the first in 2014 then jarhead 3 the siege which Mm -hmm. came out 2016 and then jarhead law of return came out this year and don michael paul directed the second and the fourth one it looks like they're totally wildly different casts in all of them and none of the sequels have good ratings on Letterboxd. Who am I? good. I'm just, I'm just pointing, just pointing it out. That is what... I, uh, <laughs> I'm writing Jarhead 5, yeah. by the way, guys. It just, it's all said. On their performances, I two things I love about the performances in this movie from our two main actors is that Jamie Foxx is playing much more neurotic than his usual on-screen persona. Like, there's not a lot of swagger to him until that great scene where he has to go in to the, to meet Javier Bardem and oh, yeah. get him, get the you know the information, pretending to be Vincent because these guys don't know what Vincent looks like. And you get this great moment where he has to improvise in the having watched Tom Cruise, having watched Vincent for the first two thirds of this movie has to then like act like him. And you can see Jamie Foxx lock into, you know, the Jamie Foxx of their next collaboration, his next collaboration with uh, Michael Mann of uh, Miami vice. Like you, he clicks into the like tough guy character right before your eyes. And it's, it's, it, it, shows the contrast to the way that his character is play he's playing the character the rest of the movie like he has to play he's playing an everyman here and like that's that's a, can be a hard thing for a movie star to do believably and then tom cruise is is internalizing so much of his outward madness and precision and you know like he, there are a few times when he 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 or there are times where he unleashes it as he becomes more and more unhinged joey to your point about michael mann sending him around to try and be anonymous he's swallowing so many of the of the ticks that we're used to in the or that we and that we enjoy in the Tom Cruise performance and having to find other ways to kind of prowl and menace and you can I, you can feel all the rage and loathing and all the stuff inside and it like peeks out and you go oh my god this guy's could snap at any minute and then he does and you're like wow this is I think this is a real testament to his ability as an actor to break some of the habits that he's that he is used to relying on and sort of sublimate them and find new ways to get that information across that feeling across to us I think both of them are playing a little bit against type and it works really well you know, there's one moment where, like, where all that comes together in Tom Cruise's performance, and that's when Jimmy Fox is like robbed by the by the Nazis, like, right? Like, there's yes. the guy with like the swastika tattoo on his eye and his bald friend, and they come along and they rob him, and then Tom Cruise just comes down from killing a guy, and he's like, "Excuse me," and it's like, "Oh shit," you know? It's like <laughs> I just saw a ghost. Like these guys have no fucking clue what they're dealing with. They, you know what I mean? And then yeah. of course they whip out their piece, and they're like, "What do you want, asshole?" And like Tom Cruise just dismantles them both, like you know, a ninja or whatever. He doesn't really show. You're right, Tobin. Like there's not like this buildup of like they're throwing cans at him and he's taking it. He just calmly and like calculated, like yeah. walks up to the if super efficiently, just like almost like ad astra, like Joey doesn't raise his heart rate. What whatsoever like just keeps a baseline bpm just like dismantles these guys and just like here's your wallet let's get going i'm on my way and it's just like damn that is fucking cold and scary when a person can just like go into that and like turn that on i believe it i believe it is the scary thing (laughs) right you know one thing that i didn't think about while watching this movie that this conversation has led me to think might be the case and i don't know that necessarily matters whether or not this is true maybe tom cruise becomes more animated and sort of more outward rather than inward as he realizes that in a certain light 
Jamie Foxx is his equal, not as a hitman, but in terms of being a professional. Mm. That I can see, you know, the Oakland thing where they he has a cab driver, you know, there's three murders and the guy, you know, takes his own life or whatever, supposedly, though we're led to believe that that's Tom Cruise doing the same thing there. Like, I can see this kind of professionalist kind of hitman going job to job and not ever being able to connect with someone because no one is on his level. And then to find someone, you know, even though he's a cab driver and not necessarily the glamorous, quote-unquote glamorous job of, like, a hitman, as he gets to know Jamie Foxx a little bit better, you know, even from the very first thing, like, it's going to take me seven minutes to get there, like, knowing that this guy is as to the letter as he is in what he does, I wonder if that opens Cruz up. You know, I, I, I think it's an impossible question to answer unless we see him on other jobs from other movies that we don't, you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. like, right. I wonder if, if his connection to this fellow professional in different fields helps him feel more at ease. And it's not only the fact that he's becoming more unhinged, things are not necessarily going as smoothly as he would like, but he's also like, oh, this is someone I can actually connect with until I inevitably kill him because I can't leave a trace. Hmm. I think you might actually be onto something there because I got the sense during this movie that Tom Cruise at one point was starting to get frustrated with Jamie Foxx because he just wanted him to be the best version of himself uh-huh. kind of thing because right, he's like right. you he's like what do you mean you want to be a limo driver and you've been a cab driver for like 15 years like get off the pot like shit or get off the pot you know he's like once he finds that out it like sort of his impression of him takes a turn and, and I think he gets more agitated because he's like well I thought this guy you know might have been sort of like a mental equal on that level or like someone who takes pride in his craft but it turns out no he wants to do something else like he's not happy with what he's doing and I kind of don't like that about him and it starts to like irk him and realize like oh things aren't exactly like as I can't control everything I'm not in control and like he starts to lose his grip a little bit and so I think he is challenged uh, at some point by this cab driver which has to be super frustrating for someone who thinks he's just you know the best at no matter what like oh I could probably drive a cab better than this guy because I'm the greatest hitman in the world kind of attitude is that's how it kind of feels when he sits down in the back seat but when you know when he's sitting there dying and bleeding out on the subway it kind of seems like good for you kid like you came out of your shell you had the guts to do it like you took me out and now you can go like live a life that's like worth something <laughs> you know i would love to see a movie where tom cruise is a cab driver actually hold on this is a good <laughs> this is a good point to pivot where i can talk about the other people before we talk about the very few things that we, maybe we didn't like about this movie uh here are some people that were originally considered for these parts so just think about this in terms of the tom cruise jimmy fox dynamic before michael mann was brought on attached to this film spike lee scorsese and spielberg were all offered the chance to direct and they all either had a conflict or dropped out for one reason or another mimi leader was originally initially attached to direct until it passed on to janice kaminsky and then russell crowe i think somebody brought in russell crowe where he was interested because this was like on the shelf for a while and russell crowe got interested in playing Mm. the tom cruise part and so he you know, gave the film some heat, not to use a Michael Mann pun, <laughs> but then he brought on Michael Mann there, and then he had to drop out because there were constant delays, delay, delay, delay. Then when he fell out, Tom Cruise was brought on board, but the idea was Cruise as the Vincent role and Adam Sandler as the cab driver, oh, which I think no. would also be fascinating, hmm. especially as right now, as this episode comes out, it's now Uncut Gems season here in America. Um, so just think about Adam Sandler as a driver. I think that would have been great. Edward Norton, Mike, our boy Edward Norton, offered oh, both lead roles 
Whoa. <laughs> Wait, at Which the same time? To play that, would be, that would have been amazing. <laughs> I, I, oh, man, I wonder. You could have Michelle Gondry direct that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. Leonardo mm. DiCaprio offered the Vincent role, but he I was don't know if he's there yet. Aviator. I could see him doing that doing today. Doing it now, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it would be amazing. Yeah. Rick fucking Dalton. <laughs> <laughs> Val Kilmer was cast as Detective Fanning, but had to oh, pull okay. out. I think Detective Fanning is the Ruffalo part. Ruffalo, yeah. Cuba met with, the, met with Michael Mann about playing the driver, but he said... Michael Mann turned Cuba down because he had they'd already acted together in Jerry Maguire, and I guess he didn't want kind of a Michael Mann didn't want to rehash it that, which I think yeah. is an interesting. Uh, John Travolta was considered for the role of, of Vincent. Of course, which... oh, of course. Which is the third time I think that's come up. That would have been amazing. Still, Joey, did you by any chance like go halfway through this movie trying to imagine that this is the same Vincent from The Color of Money? Who is oh just yes, like, that's, I wrote so there to, that, is trivia, that he's played Vincent <laughs> in two movies. <laughs> And he's just like screw pool. Somewhere during the '90s, everything fell apart, and he reemerged as like this hitman. <laughs> also, I was trying to think if he was Vincent the dog from Lost. Maybe in another life. Colin Farrell offered the role of Vincent. He would <sighs> go on. Uh, Toby, you mentioned yeah. him earlier. He would play Crockett in Miami Vice with Jamie Foxx and Nickel Man. And the only other one is that Johnny Depp was briefly considered for the role of Max oh, for the Jamie Foxx role. Johnny I don't Depp. think that works. I don't think Jamie no. Foxx in that or Johnny Depp in that role works well. But I also think that like Johnny Depp has led us all collectively down a path where I can't envision him necessarily in any role that's not, like, supremely weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, you know what? I, I think I'm kind of good with Johnny Depp for now. <laughs> like, I don't really need... I've had enough for a while. <laughs> I think that's probably true of a lot of people. Now, Tobin, yeah. on the other side of the coin, we have, we have fused, we have given off so much praise for this movie. Is there something about this that doesn't work? Is there something about this movie that you think that you would change or swap out or remove or alter... What is your least favorite part of Collateral? You know, there's not much. I wouldn't change much about this movie. I do. I am made a little uncomfortable by Jada Pinkett Smith's damsel in distress. That being sort of the the final act. I know you need that in the movie. She's she's not completely helpless, but it is. I think a real blind spot in Michael Mann. Like even if you made like the Mark Ruffalo detective a woman or. I feel like you could they, they could have populated this movie with a few more women and I think it would have been um, the movie would have been better for it so that that's maybe my um, my, mm. my contender's hat criticism of this movie is that there aren't there aren't enough sort of featured women in the movie yeah we only get the one SWAT member right there's right. one female SWAT team member yeah. and then there's like the, the two got the one guy I recognize from everything and then like two or three other guys who I can't quite place but yeah that she was the only other yeah woman that I noticed in the entire movie pretty much that uh, wasn't just a background extra or something. Right. I agree with that. I think I would like to see more women here. I think the difficulty here is that even if you have, you know, Mark Ruffalo be a woman, like there's this movie is really just two people, right? It's Cruz and it's Jamie Foxx. Like everybody else, like Jada Pinkett Smith is third build. I think Ruffalo is probably fourth, but like they're on screen for maybe 10 minutes, eight minutes, 10 minutes. Like, yeah. I, I think that there's opportunity for more of that. That's all I'm asking for is more of that. Yeah, I think it's just, uh, <laughs> it's difficult for like anybody to really sort of be able to compare to the two lead because they have so much time on screen. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, not, I'm not asking, I'm not asking to, to, you know, a wholesale thing. I just think, and even if I, if I just saw this movie, I might not really feel that way, but just, I, it makes me a conflicted Michael Mann fan. I'm such a fan of his movies and he has maybe two female characters who are, who I can really get behind and, and neither of them 
humor in this movie. And so it has, I think it's me looking more sort of holistically at his work. There's, I mean, I don't know what you, what you would change in this movie. I think it's, I think it's just so, so, so rich. I mean, there's room. I mean, like this is a two hour movie, but like I sat down and watched it straight through with no breaks. I just like coasted right through this thing. I was just like gripped by it. And I was like, well, I could take an extra like 10, 15 minutes if we need to flesh out like Jada Pinkett Smith at the office or, you know what I'm saying? Like do more cop things and like have them try and contact her or like, you know, have her have to like fight someone. And regardless, like even though it's a long movie, it's not what I was complaining about. I was like, give me more of this movie, you know, squeeze more of that stuff in. Maybe, you know, next time. <laughs> is that what you would fix too? Is that your least favorite oh, part, Mike? Or is there no, something else so, that you would point out? No. So I, there, there is like almost like Apollo 13. There's like literally one moment in this movie that like, I just can't, it just like my eyes can't roll far. It's like that George Clooney gift, you know, from uh, Ocean's 13 <laughs> where it just the eye or 12 where the eyes roll so hard. And um, it comes right after one of the coolest moments that I thought was so poignant and like so like they're sit it's towards the end and they're sitting there in the cab and everybody's really weary and I think they're off to like their last uh, I think it's right before he crashes the cab maybe they're sitting at a light and they see the coyote in the street right or yeah. That's a coyote, right? Yeah, that's yeah. what that is? Or, yes. I wasn't sure if it was a wolf or a coyote okay. I was like oh that's awesome because that's like you could make a case for it being either of them and then the whole moment is ruined when the song plays. And it's like, you got to be fucking kidding me. You're going to play, like, the hit single music video drop right now? Like, you're going to play, like, this somber, introspective, thoughtful, like, the whole movie has not been going in that direction. Like, just let it sit there. Let it be in silence. Let them have the moment. And I was just so disappointed that they couldn't help themselves or they had to do that or, or whatever. It just felt like... In an otherwise movie that was like so close to perfect, <laughs> I was like, damn it, that really, that really just took me out of it, you know? I was like right after a really cool shot and really cool thing, and it's just, boom, this song just kind of hit me. I was like, um, but And that's literally like one of the only other things I can think of that like about this movie that just like isn't great. I, I agree with you. It's, it is a, it is a tick of um <laughs> of michael mm-hmm. mann that sometimes works really well and sometimes his taste is maybe is maybe a little off in terms of the moment or the or the tune yeah i, I wouldn't mind that being a little altered there too yeah because you're right that moment the moment is so good and that says it all all that you need to say there's also i think a navajo saying that if you go down a path and you see a coyote cross the street like are you cross in front of you you turn around you go back but there's no like nothing good is going to come after that oh it's like a point of no return kind exactly. of exactly it's just like a, oh that oh. happened uh, let's not temp fate let's go back Mm -hmm. the one moment i think it's again maybe you could convince me that this is good but i think early on i think after tom cruise kills the first guy and jamie fox is basically trying to figure out the why of tom cruise and tom cruise says something about like he he references the rwandan genocide Uh and is like Uh do you care about those people there's ten thousand there's tens of thousands of people killed before the sun comes up and like you're not crying a tear over those it's just like well what like, I don't, <laughs> what? <laughs> it is kind of like just, yeah, pick an atrocity out of a hat right, to make your right. point moment kind of thing. I've wondered, is there any, it was, is this all scripted or did they have any time to like play around? Because I wonder if that was born out of like sitting in the back seat for hours, like going over dialogue, trying to punch stuff up to be more spontaneous and stuff, because that did feel kind of like a thing that someone would just sort of like 
talk out of their ass about or something, you know, like bullshit about or like not exactly know what he's talking about, but just like, oh, I have a strong example. Maybe he'll concede to my point if I sound like I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I don't know, but I did like most of the rest of the banter. They did a lot of rehearsals for this movie. And on the DVD that I have, you can see some of the footage that Michael Mann shot with his little mini DV camera of uh, he has he's like looking for angles as they're running the scenes in a, in a cab that's not moving they're just sort of in their street clothes running scenes and apparently what they would do is they would run this they would like run the scenes on the script and then they would make improv things then make changes and then um Stuart is it Stuart Beatty or Stuart Beatty I never know how to say his name the writer would go back and like incorporate that stuff into the script and they bring new pages and they do it again so they, they sort of workshop the movie so it was it was very scripted but some of the script some of the lines came out of, out of their rehearsals like out of sort of an improvisational process and then they would, would be reincorporated into a script that's cool I like that I wonder do, do you even know how long this took to shoot how many weeks they did to, to shoot this movie because it feels like it could have been either forever or like <laughs> right. a very like short a amount of time yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah I get more of the sense that uh, it didn't take too long like it feels like something they just like blew through almost and like you know tried to capture like lightning in a bottle or that kind of thing where it's like don't think too much about it like let's just go out there with all these new digital cameras and just shoot 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 and like get what we get and then like go back and like let's just put out what we get and like that you know what I mean like that yeah. kind of filming like, let's not think too much about it like let's just do what we're doing and get it over with and get it done and not not to say like let's rush it but like stick to the plan and don't get too off track and it just feels like that type of production do your prep get it ready and then go just get it done it does feel like the ethos of the movie. I know that there was a scene, like, I can't find how long it took to shoot, but I know that there was a scene where Mark Ruffalo first realizes the connection between it all. I think this is probably either the morgue or right around the time of the morgue. They apparently did, like, 80 or more takes of that. Like, Whoa. it was just one of those, like, you had to break him down to, like, get him to actually have that kind of, like, breakthrough, sort of. That maybe indicates that it wasn't necessarily, like, a breezy shoot. It's just like, hey, we're going to be in here for a while. You know what yeah, I mean? But yeah. Yeah. it does kind of feel like, okay. let's just go around, like, let's strap a camera in the, in the like, let's strap cameras all over the cab and just go around for a night and just see what we get and then go from there. Like, I, I don't think it's that loosey-goosey, but it also feels like it almost could be. Could have been, And it's right. a testament to the kind of the type of movie that it is. I, also, it's going to take longer maybe because they're working out new technology too. True. That's very true. Do either of you have anything else to say? There's a couple other notes that I want to make note of, but I will mention them in the awards ceremony, but I probably have a little bit more <laughs> trivia. But is there anything else that you guys want to talk about you want to bring up before we play a couple games and nominate this for some awards? I love it. Yeah, no, me neither. I'm definitely going to rewatch this one soon. When at the end of the movie where Tom Cruise is chasing Jamie Foxx and Jada Pinkett Smith through that office building and he throws the chair through the glass door and then he tries to run through it and he like, trips over the chair. Yeah. wasn't supposed to trip, but he actually did trip and they kept it in there. So I guess he is not infallible in action scenes. Michael Mann used to drive a cab as did his father and his grandfather owned a cab company. So there was a uh, history there. I guess that's why. Originally, Vincent's name, Tom Cruise's character's name was Vincent Collateral, which... Oh, no, 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 no. Not a a great name. No. No. When this movie was coming out just a few years earlier in 2002, I think Collateral Damage, the Schwarzenegger movie, came out and kind of bombed. And people Mm -hmm. were wondering whether or not they should call this movie Collateral because they were afraid of it being tied in some kind of way in people's minds to that movie. And they basically decided, let's not get rid of a name that we love because a movie that has nothing to do with our movie didn't do well, which yeah. I think is a, is the, is the right choice to make. And it didn't end up hurting it at all either. No one remembered collateral damage. Right, right. The sunglasses, this is important. We might nominate this later. The sunglasses, 
Tom Cruise wears are these silhouette 4048s. So if you want to look like him in this movie, dye your hair gray and do the silhouette 4048s. It's good cosplay. <laughs> yeah, it's not too... You get a, just a nice-looking gray suit, beautiful head of hair, gray, and then, you know, just carry around that, like, briefcase. There's almost like a... I wonder if you picked up something from working with John Woo, because there's a very Hong Kong sort of action gun mm, style to sure. this character specifically. Like, even though all white, like, a lot of sort of, like, the Merchant of Death style gun fu killers, like, wear all white instead of black in those types of movies and things. So, like, I was picking up on some of those sort of, like influences and stuff speaking of john boo especially speaking of mission impossible 2 i when i was getting uh i was getting flashbacks of the first mission impossible when he jumps onto that train at the end i was like oh yeah very important question i know the answer to both of these questions already but i wanted to ask both of you first does tom cruise run in this movie (laughs) resounding absolutely Absolutely yes he does definitely does Maybe a more difficult question, but I think the answer, once again, obviously is yes. We found Harper Fact on Twitter who said that you could replace Tom Cruise's name in any movie with the name Lightning McQueen and not a thing would change. Here's my rationale. Vincent isn't necessarily his name. Like, it's just a name, right? Like, he could have a different name in every city. I think it's probably his name, but it also doesn't matter. If he introduced himself to Jamie Foxx's, hey, I'm Lightning, Lightning McQueen, he'd be like, all right. Um, so I say absolutely yes, but I want to hear your take. I know, I know, Mike, you're well, generally with me here. I know it's sort yep. of a tougher sell for the guest from week to week. But uh, Tobin, do you think that he could play Lightning McQueen in this movie, or is that a name that just makes no sense within the context of Collateral? Yeah, I, I don't buy it as his name in the movie, but I wonder if you could take the name Vincent Collateral and give him that name in every other movie that he's been in. And, and All right, got to restart. Wait, Mike, what were we restarting? Oh, we were restarting Hanks for the Memories to see if he pees in every movie, and we're restarting this to see if Vincent Collateral works. So, you know, we'll scrap the last year of work and just, you know, oh, start yeah. over. Yeah, start over, yeah. I think you could get away with being called Mr. McQueen a lot in this, and then, like, halfway through, he reveals that his his first name's Lightning, and that's part of, like, his trauma and why he's, like, such a killer. It's like a boy <laughs> named Sue complex that he has kind of thing. It's like, I don't make me tell you my first name. I kill, like, I tell you my name, I have to kill you. <laughs> So yes, I think it would work. Thank you. That's that's. I was just waiting. I was leaving a dramatic pause for you to say yes. All right. So the Tom Cruise Awards. The we still don't have a name for them. Uh, maybe the Collaterals. Probably not. Uh, best film for sure. Collateral. Yeah, dude. I mean, oh, I mean, there's so many good ones, but like this is this is up there, man. You know, I'm gonna take out now. I know that we have like a dozen people nominated, but I'm gonna take out best director filmmaker just because it's not Cruise related and we have too many other things. I'm just gonna goodbye. I'm so sorry, but. You're all gone. Vincent, in Collateral, best role, I think, for sure. And most badass role as well. I would think so. I mean, he does so much with this role. I I don't know how you could... I mean, I I think it stacks up really well with a lot of his other iconic roles. I'd love to see him uh, fight himself from The Last Samurai, because, like, that's the other big badass (laughs) role that recently that I really love. (laughs) Now, here is an important question, and I think this is, you know, it sort of piggybacks off what Tobin just said in a way. Is this one of Tom Cruise's most daring roles to take? I mean, it's, I think, somehow Hmm. simultaneously both firmly in his wheelhouse and also wildly out of his wheelhouse. Is this one of the most daring roles that he's taken? It was considered that way at the time. There was a lot of question about him playing gray him playing the the killer him being the heavy in the movie whether it is in retrospect i'm not sure but it certainly was at the moment it's tough because like i remember when this came out i was like oh like evil evil cruise like that's interesting but it was still more like i equated him 
in this picture to be like action crews. Like I thought when this came out, it was more like an action film until I first saw it really, you know? And so mm. I think just in that regard to me, it's not as daring as like what he did with Magnolia, you know, like right, I think right. from, I think that is something where it's like, he really fucking swung and put his career kind of on the line, like between that and eyes wide shut. And like, I think Magnolia, his performance is way more successful. I think it's just, you know, comes much more alive in that film. You know, yeah, this is, there's a lot of stuff, going for this and everything but i just think magnolia is the harder performance and the more daring and the more sort of like naked performance if you will or something like that you know like he, he seems like he's got a, a a grip on this like he could play this all day and i'd love to see him play this all day whereas magnolia i feel like he's got maybe two or three of those in him that's true it's a good point i agree with everything you said i'm still going to put it on the list if only because we only have four other nominees and i would like to have a round <laughs> number five but i agree right. that it's not as i think it's more daring than a lot of what he does but yeah. I don't think it's as daring as Eyes Wide Shut Magnolia, what you what you were mentioning just now. I'll be prepared to remake that argument at the end of the run. <laughs> Best fight. Is there a specific fight? I mean, is there a fist fight? I mean, he just kind of I mean, hits dudes. Yeah, but the fights in, maybe in the club, the John Wick scene, where he's, like, taking out the guys in hand-to-hand combat. Because then you get to see him, you know, you know he knows hand-to-hand combat. He's not just a gunslinger. I just don't think it's going to win. I think you're going to have so many more other options that True. maybe this is one where okay. you don't put it on. Not because it's not good, but just because it takes a back seat to some other things in this movie. <laughs> Taxi cab pun. But, uh, uh, best theme song soundtrack score. I think it's great in here, but I was also thinking as I was listening to the score, because there were certain things where I was like, oh, this sounds, this is so cool. I don't know that a score is ever really going to win this category, Mike. I think right. we're going to remember sort of like juking box musicals. I think it's going to be like, you know, Magnolia. It's going to be Risky Business. It's going to be song, it's going to be movies where, you know, mm-hmm. Top Gun, where it's like, oh, I know exactly. Like, yeah, I need, I, you know, Danger Zone, right? Like, I think that's what's right. going right. to sound like a cool, throbbing, yeah. pulsing, you know, score here. I think it's great, but I don't know that it's necessarily going to hold up. So I think in that regard, can I skip it? Until you get to mm-hmm. Rock of Ages, obviously. <laughs> I mean, clear. Of course. <laughs> Stacy Jacks, right? Is that yep. his name? Yep, it is. Yep. With two E's. Best two car X's. chase slash... I th- are you going to be on that? Is that you no, in Iceland? No, no, no. I don't think so. <laughs> I've never seen it. I've never seen it. Oh, no, you are. I, I recruited you because Iceland's on that episode. It's you in Iceland, so oh, you're really? going to watch it with us yeah. for the first time because I've right. never seen it either. Here we go. <laughs> Best car chase race. He doesn't drive. I think I'm going to exclude yeah. this one. But, yeah. you know, if we had a foot race. I mean, there's a running scene which we're going to get to. There's a foot race. There's a great foot race here, but we'll get to the running scene later. Best dance scene? I don't think he dances. No. He's at a club, but he's not dancing. Best cruise outfit wardrobe. Looking good, but I don't think it's spectacular. No, it's more like innocuous, right? It's like not to stand out. Right, right. Best sunglasses I will put on here just because I think it is a... uh, Best death. Uh, shot and killed by Jamie Foxx. <laughs> and then left on the subway as per his earlier anecdote about the That's guy right. who died on the subway. So I think it's pretty poetic too. Now, best line, this is something that I was saving. I think there's a line he says toward the end when he is in full Terminator mode where he says to Jamie Foxx, Max, I do this for a living. Like, yep. <laughs> why are you messing with me right now? You know who I am. You know what I do. Stop it. And I think I do this for a living, not necessarily as iconic as other of his quotes, but I think for this movie, you know, I think it's I think it's one that's worth noting. Absolutely. That's a great, great line. Yeah. Best freak out. I mean, it's, that's maybe more of a freak out, but I'll just leave it in best line. Best sex mm-hmm. scene. Nope, not in this movie. Most athletic feat. He does I mean... a jump. He, it's If he jumped onto the subway car, I think uh-huh. that'd be one. But he does like a jump where he jumps basically across the entire width 
of a subway car, like when he <laughs> yeah. gets on the back. Like it's not it's not as spectacular as other things he's done, but man, it's it's a long jump. That alone, but also just the, the stamina to to take out five people in one night just seems like a lot to do in one night you know like this guy is just on mission like he's up for it too he's like hey man i had a great dinner like i'm good to go like i'm gonna go kill five i could kill six people oh i might even kill seven and he does he kills like extra people um but then he does like at the end of it after he's all beat the shit and stuff too he has like a superhuman jump onto the subway so best or worst love story no oh best running scene though uh chasing jamie fox mm-hmm. through los angeles best ensemble cast i'm gonna say not not enough people it's, right? it's not, yeah, it's, really there's, an it's ensemble. not enough they're just they're so they're, they're not so together scattered. yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a great cast, but... Best non-cruise actor, male or female, do we want to nominate Jamie Foxx? I mean, it's either him or The Rough, and I think we got... I think I want to give it to Jamie Foxx, yeah, yeah. to be honest, yeah. yeah. This is almost his movie, right? Like, I almost got a sense at times where, like, Tom Cruise... It almost seems like, not that, that he's like shepherding or anything like that or mentoring, but it just seemed like here's an actor in Jamie Foxx who's like up and coming and like, I kind of want to help this guy or like be in a movie with this guy because I recognize ability and stuff. And so like, there's just this like common ground I sense between them, you know, like yeah, a respect yeah. and yeah. like of Tom Cruise being so seasoned at this point and Jamie Foxx being so sort of new. There's just kind of like unusual. I don't know. I don't really get that energy a lot. So it was really nice to see that. And it is a little weird that, uh, you know, a few years later, Jamie Foxx will date his ex-wife. Um, <laughs> 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 <some> happening. <laughs> I think we have, unless I'm doing this wrong, 12 nominees. Best film best role oh wait no it's gonna be less than that best film best role most badass role most daring role to take best sunglasses best death best line best running scene and best non-cruise actor male for jamie fox in collateral very very good Good, showing stuff yeah Nine nominations. Very, very good. Very, very impressive. Next week, Mike, you and I over on Hank's Memories covering a little movie called Toy Story, which very exciting. And then two Mm. weeks here, we are going back another Channing Tatum movie, although not exactly. We'll be covering the next episode of Crucible. We'll be covering War of the Worlds, a movie where Channing Tatum is supposedly in. Spoiler alert, not actually in. But there is another full episode of Magic Mike's about that one, too. So... You know, Magic Mike's may be dead, but I'm glad that we did an entire episode about a movie that Channing Tatum is not in. Tobin, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I think you won't be back again until Rock of Ages. Thank you for joining us. And if you wanted to tell our listeners one more time about the contenders and what movie will be coming out as this episode comes out, I think next Tuesday or maybe in two Tuesdays. A show with my sister called The Contenders about uh, movies made by and or starring women who refuse to play by the rules. And our next episode comes out. We come out the, oh my God. Last Tuesday? It's the last Tuesday, right? So it's mm-hmm. so it's New Year's Eve. We're gonna have an episode uh, on on December twenty first on or sorry December thirty first on uh, Frozen two. Take your kids or your nieces or your nephews or yourselves or your significant others to go check out Frozen two and then come listen to our show on the thirty first. And journey so, into the unknown. Into the unknown, indeed. And let it snow, <laughs> right? And let it snow, guys. Yes. But for all things Cruise Club, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, run at cageclub.me. Come back next week over on Hanks of the Memories for Toy Story. Come back here in two weeks for 
War of the Worlds. You know, we are in the back half of Cruise Club. I think it's Cruise Club is tentatively scheduled to wrap up in July or August of next year. So there's not that much more just because Tom Cruise has not done that many. But we have 1,350-something episodes at <laughs> cageclub.me slash shows. Go check out all 26 programs, including, I mentioned on this episode, a new episode of Cage Club this month, a new episode of Viva Pod Vegas. And actually, as this episode comes out, there's a chance this weekend another episode of Viva Pod Vegas about Jailhouse Rock might be just around the corner unless schedules do not align. But just throwing that out there, get ready for even more Elvis Presley film coverage for some reason from me and Mike. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Tobin Addington of the Contenders Podcast. And we'll see you next time right here on Cruise Club. Mm Mm-hmm.